Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for uh, the chance we have to gather this morning uh, to spend time in your word, to reflect on the Christmas season and uh, your choosing to work with your creation for your purposes and for your glory. Lord, we pray you'd open our hearts and by your spirit, would you speak to us uh, and help us to grow and to learn more and more uh, to be the people you've called us to be. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to do a quick recap of where we are in the book of Ruth. Uh, last week, we talked about Ruth chapter 2, where a mother, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a Moabite, uh, are widowed. They're without much hope at all. And Naomi is bitter uh, about her situation, but Ruth decides to make the most of it, and she's going to choose to go and glean, which means to gather some of the harvest that was allowed for widows or orphans or the poor to come and uh, and not be totally destitute, but be able to get some food for themselves. So she goes off to do that, and she just so happens to run into Boaz, who owns the field, and he is kind to her. We're told he's of good character, he's an upright guy, and he notices and welcomes Ruth and really goes out of his way uh, to make sure she's cared for. And this is a, a stand-up guy. And then Ruth tells all this to Naomi at the end of chapter 2, and Naomi uh, tells us, tells us as an audience, tells Ruth that Boaz is actually a kinsman redeemer, which means that he can marry Ruth, marry into the family, and that will pull them out of destitution and uh, bring them kind of back into family proper family conditions again, but also uh, secure the legacy for Naomi that she's lost with the death of her husband and the death of her sons-in-law. She won't have any grandchildren, and so their portion uh, and their land and whatnot will just go to someone else. And we talked about God's purposes in all of that, that God is at work in Ruth and Naomi's lives behind the scenes, even though they don't realize it, and in much the same way, God is at work in our lives in moments where we maybe don't realize. And uh, perhaps you can think of moments in your own life where it uh, felt like lots was happening. Maybe you were in a place that was quite difficult and you're wondering, where is God in this? And Ruth is a reminder that God is still at present and his good uh, purposes and his sovereignty uh, are still prevailing even when we may not see the full picture and it feels difficult. So we talked about how God's at work. We talked about how Ruth chooses to act and chooses to respond and do something about her situation, even though uh, it's difficult. And we talked also about how uh, in our lives, despite our circumstances, we can choose uh, to act in the same way Ruth does. And then we talked about Boaz, how he extends grace and hospitality to Ruth. And in much the same way, he, he's displaying God's heart to us. And God's heart is one that displays grace and hospitality. And uh, we're called as his children to display that same sort of grace and hospitality and compassion as Christians. And so let's jump into Ruth chapter 3. Now, we begin this section with Naomi's rather daring plan to make something happen for her and for Ruth. And she says to Ruth right at the beginning, if you look at your Bible, look at verse 1. She says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you 
that you uh, that that it may be well with you that you would live. It's a sense of her looking for home or for security or rest uh, for Ruth. She talks about this in the first chapter that she can't provide this very well. It's the same thing, yeah, back in her mind in chapter one, verse nine. It is, and this in in, in Naomi's mind, this is the idea of marriage. She can't provide home or or security or provision for Ruth now that her family has passed away. It's interesting that Naomi's rest and her home are going to be dependent not so much on Boaz marrying into the family, which he will, which will affect Naomi and benefit her, but initially what Naomi needs is for Ruth to do something for her lot in life. And so she's dependent on another woman to secure her future. And Naomi seems somewhat revitalized uh, from chapter two. After seeing what uh, Ruth is able to do in the gleaning, she now proposes that Ruth uh, tromp down to the threshing floor and go at night and approach Boaz. Uh, this, is, this is rather scandalous. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit as we go here. Boaz is uh, out on the threshing floor. So this is part of sort of agriculture at the time, right? The threshers are winnowing the threshed grain. Uh, they throw it up and the heavy kernels fall down and the chaff and, and sort of the waste just blows away downwind. And so you have this large sort of flat open space, not far from the city gates, somewhere that you can kind of get to fairly easily. And you have lots of farmers and farmhands sort of gathered there for work and there's lots of commotion, lots of activity. Um, to the ancient audience, going to the threshing floor would evoke something of a reminder of the prophet. So if you're reading this later on, there's this idea that God, uh, the, the threshing floor is like a picture of God's uh, blessing and provision because there's sort of bounty of grain and life and harvest. Uh, but it's also a place of gathering and a place of feasting. And you get the sense of that uh, later on when we hear kind of what Boaz is doing. So she's to go down to the threshing floor. He's winnowing barley tonight, she says in verse 2. So what are the instructions to Ruth in verse 3? These are uh, for, for men and women out there who are interested in pursuing a spouse. These are not bad words of advice. Wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Put on your cloak, get dressed, and then go down. Uh, Naomi wants Ruth to look her best. And if, you're, if you are trying to pursue someone, uh, young men and women here today, uh, it's good for you to bathe. It is good for you to try to smell nice. It's good for you to put in a little bit of effort in what you wear, perhaps. Uh, she wants Ruth to look her best. You know, those same verbs, bathe, anoint, and dress, in Ezekiel 16, are the same verbs that God says he will do for Jerusalem as he prepares to marry Israel. That he will, he will bathe you, he will anoint you with oil, outclothe you, says God. It's the same verbs that David will use later on, when he ends his mourning period in 2 Samuel 12, after his infant son dies. And after that child dies and, and the mourning period ends, David bathes himself and anoints himself and dresses. And both of those echoes 
makes sense here. In some ways, like Yahweh marrying Israel, Ruth is preparing herself to propose to Boaz, to marry Boaz. In the same way, the other echo of ending a mourning period also makes sense. Because some, some scholars, some rabbis would say she would have been wearing her widow's clothing. And now she can bathe and anoint herself and dress and shift from being in widow grieving, official grieving mode, to uh, being available for betrothal. So both of those uh, nuances could very well be happening. Some translate the anoint yourself uh, to perfume yourself, uh, put on something that smells nice. Um, but everyone, most everyone here in the ancient Near East is really quite poor. And you don't have, oil's sort of an uh, uh, expensive commodity. It's sort of, sort of precious, fancy. Often what you do with, with oil is you would, you would rub it in your hair so the sun wouldn't dry you out too much. If you were a guy, you would rub it in your beard to keep your beard nice. And uh, typically, you might mix it with something to smell nice, but pretty much just for special occasions. So the, the implication could be, uh, Ruth, it's okay. You can even kind of get uh, especially nice for this moment. Uh, and she can shed her widow's garment, so to speak. Or it, it could simply be, Ruth, just dress up as festively as you can. Uh, don't use your work clothes. Try and find something else. Of course, they probably don't have more than one set of clothes, maybe two sets of clothes. Uh, we're so rich these days. Um, but, you know, they maybe have something else to wear other than uh, her work clothes. But the idea is, uh, this is a special occasion. So get ready, wash, shower, put on deodorant, put on some nice clothes, go down, find Boaz, go down to the threshing floor. And as I said, that's a fairly astonishing thing for Naomi to recommend. It's pretty risque. Ruth's to go at night, not make herself known. Uh, there's a sense of sort of secrecy and anticipation, like what's going to happen, right? Will she get found out? And this whole encounter with Ruth and Boaz really breaks convention. It's not clear to us whether Ruth is to sort of hide from view all night. She has to be there early enough to figure out where Boaz, you know, threw out his sleeping bag. Uh, she's just hidden somewhere, or is she allowed to sort of mill about anonymously and kind of keep an eye out on what Boaz does? We're not sure. If it's the latter, then it seems like it's probably socially acceptable for women to be present at the threshing floor. We don't know for sure, or at least until nightfall. Uh, but likely they couldn't be out after nightfall because, again, even though we're close to the city, close to the town gates, it's not exactly safe. And that comes out later that it's potentially dangerous. So wait until Boaz, says, says Naomi, wait until he has eaten and drank. This is the end of verse 3. This is also very good practical advice. Uh, ladies, if you have to talk to a man about something, impo something important and you want him to actually pay attention, wait until he's eaten. Wait till he's in a good mood. Uh, wives, if the husband comes in the door after work and he's probably exhausted and you have something that you need to tell him, he's had to deal with nonsense people all day and he's tired. Let him just have a moment to breathe. Maybe eat supper together first. Then unload. Then tell him all the stuff that you need to tell him. Uh, before you launch into the major thing, maybe just let him breathe for a second. Let him eat and drink. 
Ruth, wait until Boaz is done eating and drinking. He'll be in a better mood. Uh, this is true. This is, this is just solid advice for everyone. Uh, wait till they finish the night before you spring the idea of marriage on him. It's good. It's wise. Uh, if he's full, he'll probably be more generous, right? If he's hungry, he may just be a bit indifferent. We'll see. And as I said, now Ruth needs to watch and see where Boaz will lay down. He'll probably lay down a little bit away from the crew. Uh, he'll sleep nearby. He gets, he sleeps outside with everybody. Uh, but he might be just be a little bit away. Um, because once it's dark, you will not be able to find him, right? There's no flashlights. There's not torches on, likely. Even if it is, that doesn't cast a lot of light. Uh, so you're not poking around seeing where he is. Like you have to go. This is a stealth mission, right? So you have to see where he goes. Uh, and then uh, you get to you get to approach him. Now, what is she supposed to do? Look at verse four. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do, says Naomi. Uh, and now, this Hebrew verb for lie down occurs eight times in the chapter. It's a lot. It's, it's like overloaded with this lie down imagery. In other biblical passages, that phrase, the verb usage to lie down, usually refers to inappropriate intimacy. So there's likely, there's a sense in which the scene is built to make you wonder, are they going to engage in something inappropriate? Uh, what's going to happen? That's built into the passage. Uh, it's the same verb used with Lot and his daughters, which is part of Ruth's ancestry, right? We talked about that, that she's a Moabite. She came from the incestuous union of Lot and his daughters. It's also comparable to the passages later in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 between David and Bathsheba, which is another inappropriate sexual encounter. So the passage is, the narrator purposely charges the passage with this. Uh, it's this, it's inspired by the Spirit intending for us to, to link this episode with the previous Moabite episode, which was marked by sin. And so we're meant to read this going, what will happen? Will this turn into another sort of sinful encounter? Or will Ruth and Boaz be righteous? What are they going to do? Will they be like their, their ancestors? Or will they choose a different sort of life? Now, Naomi tells Ruth to uncover his feet and lie down. And given sort of the charged nature of the scene, uh, it's suggested sometimes, and you, you can read this depending on the scholarship, that sometimes this involves inappropriate contact of some kind. But we can see the narrator setting us up to, to wonder uh, if they'll resist sin. And because we've been told multiple times about how these are righteous people, how Boaz is a stand-up guy, how Ruth is stand-up in her character, um, it seems like this isn't about them doing something scandalous, but rather she's to lift the blanket to uncover his feet, points us back to the previous chapter where, where there was the call for God to spread her wing, spread his wings over her. And so it's picking up that same image of someone providing and caring for her, and she's sort of evoking that with the blanket. Other really practical thing, if you're sleeping and someone pulls a blanket off of you, or at least off of your feet, your feet get cold, then what happens? You wake up, and then you suddenly are startled to see who's laying next to you. But this is, this is to just get him to wake up without just, you know, poking him. Uh, it's just sort of a practical element. So Ruth, Ruth lying down next to him has potentially really pretty serious consequences, especially at night. 
uh, it looks like some sort of like she's trying to seduce him in some way. And then remember, Ruth's a Moabite, so it looks even worse because of their history and all of that, the poor reputation. But Ruth agrees to this. So you can see that Naomi's plan is like pretty intense. It's like, we got to make something happen. You go, go find Boaz. And this is what you're going to do. Uh, it involves them really putting their trust in Boaz's character that he'll respond appropriately. Really, that's a big part of this. So we get to, to verses 6 to 15, which is them meeting at the threshing floor. Let me just read uh, part of this again. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, so he's in a good mood, he's receptive, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly. I love that she's just sort of tiptoeing by. Doot, 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 and uncovered his feet. And then she lays down next to him. And at midnight, it takes a while for the guy. He finally you know, figures out what's going on. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. It's meant to have that sort of shocking moment. Uh, you get the exclamation mark, right? And he says, he can't tell who it is. Who are you? Who? Like, what? What's happening? Uh, so Boaz is in a fairly receptive mood. His heart is good. And Ruth sneaks in. And that sneaking in moment of a woman going to sneak up on a man in the dark alludes back to Judges. Now, we didn't read Judges going into Ruth, but Judges chapter 4, there's a judge named Jael. And she sneaks over to take out an enemy named Sisera. Uh, and so she, she has to sneak through the night, and then she kills him. It's pretty graphic. It's quite fun. You're reading Judges. Um, but in both cases, you have a foreign woman approaching a sleeping man. And in Jael's case, it's to take his life. But in Ruth's case, it's to offer new life. Right? So it's a biblical echo going on. Uh, but there's a clear sense of suggestiveness in uncovering him. Uh, and he wakes up, verse 9, Boaz doesn't know who Ruth is. She's in different clothes, if you can tell. And she probably smells nice, which is probably different from most of the workers during the day, how they would smell, right? Again, it's dark. And then something interesting happens. What? He said, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Hang on a second. Naomi had said, just lay there. And then when Boaz wakes up, listen to what Boaz will say. What did Ruth do? She takes matters into her own hands. She changes Naomi's plan. She doesn't wait for him to give her instructions. She, she takes the initiative once again. And the words she uses here imply a pretty bold proposal of marriage uh, to him as kinsman redeemer, or even just provide generally. Um, but again, Ruth is taking charge and telling Boaz uh, what to do. Spread your wings over your servant. You're a redeemer. And that expression for the edge of your garment spread over her is, is meant to refer to marriage as a proposal. Now, remember, Boaz had prayed for Ruth. Uh, sorry, Boaz had prayed that that God would shelter Ruth, that Ruth would be sheltered by God. And now she's asking Boaz to spread his wings over her, in a sense, to be the agent of God's work, uh, to be the answer to the prayer in some sense, to provide redemption for them. Uh, but it, it's interesting, whatever sort of romantic tension might be here between them, Ruth doesn't appeal to that at all. 
right? There's no reference to like, if you really like me, maybe we can do this. Or like, do you love me? There's none of that. Uh, instead, she just calls Boaz to his responsibility uh, as a redeemer. It's, it's a little bit no nonsense, I think, on Ruth's part. Um, but the idea is, is again, that let your, let your name uh, be carried over me. Spread your name over me. Take me as your wife. You are uh, a redeemer. The call to Boaz is pretty clear, even though it doesn't sound, it's not like she says, will you marry me, uh, in, in the way we would say it. But Boaz responds, uh, he clearly knows what's expected of him, right? The way he responds. And this response from Boaz is the longest uh, speech in the book of Ruth. It's the longest section. And he, he doesn't just say, I will. He blesses God. He gives her a promise. He assures her of what, you know, that things will be okay. He makes it clear to her, uh, you could have gone after a younger guy, Ruth. You're not legally obligated to come after me. There's a, there's a sense in which Boaz is probably an older guy because he has uh, the employees under him. He has the land. Um, some, some traditions, some rabbis say, actually, there's potential that Boaz was a widow himself, which is interesting. We don't know that from the biblical text. But Ruth, just as Ruth is extending a sort of kindness to Boaz uh, and asking for Boaz to extend kindness to her, it actually is really nice of her uh, to, to propose to him because he's likely seemingly older than uh, who she could go after, so to speak. We don't know his age, of course, but uh, it's just interesting. That's, again, the, my daughter language, right, is, is an age thing that he says. Uh, so verse 11, he affirms this, do not fear, I will do this, right? Uh, you're a woman of valor. The elders in town know it, right? She has good reputation. And then Boaz's turn, uh, mind sort of turns to practical matters. This is, very, this is very how a guy operates. Uh, first thing he says is, I, I will marry you, but there's another kinsman redeemer who's technically closer qualifying for this. So according to, again, to the Jewish law and who counts as redeemer and who can marry in, uh, it kind of fell to a certain order. And Boaz is saying, like, I count, but there's like another guy who technically could do this. And if he's willing to, great, I guess. You know, but if not, I will marry you. Great. Okay. And then he says, uh, you know, we need to get that settled before uh, he can marry Ruth. And then he says, verse 13, remain here tonight, and in the morning, if he'll redeem you good, let him do it. If he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down until the morning. Now, why doesn't he send her away? Probably because it's dangerous, and he just wants her to just be safe, lie down, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a hospitality and protection thing. He's literally taking Ruth under his wing in some sense. Uh, and the, again, the scene is charged with that sort of romantic uh, tension, and Ruth lies down at Boaz's feet, is the sense we have. Their whole conversation's been centered on the matter of redemption, not on any sort of physical attraction on their part. Um, and so it's, it's neat, again, seeing how Boaz just acts honorably towards Ruth. Uh, ladies, it's important in a guy that you're pursuing, uh, that you're interested in, that he acts honorably towards you and boaz goes out of his way to do that when i asked uh sarah's dad if i could marry her 
which I did, which maybe sounds a little old fashioned, but I did. Uh, his main advice to me was to honor and respect her. That was his charge to me. Uh, Boaz does the same here, caring for Ruth. So we get now to verses 14 and 15 to the end. So she lay at his feet until morning. She doesn't lay under the blanket with him. She's laying down at his feet. It then arose before anyone could recognize her. So again, it's a little scandalous that she's there, right? Uh, because Boaz says, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. This is not good. Uh, I don't, he's caring for her reputation, right? He's like, this is, you know, we don't want the rumors getting out. You can just imagine. Uh, we, don't, we don't need that happening. Uh, this is, again, pretty compromising by Ruth and Naomi that they would do this. He wants to protect her. Um, it, 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 just imagine the scene, right? Like the headline, old man seduced by Moabite. You know, it's kind of what it sounds like. Uh, and then Boaz gives her more grain, kind of like in the previous scene. And, and then Ruth goes home to relay all of this to Naomi. And in some ways, it's almost like Boaz is saying, even if I take Ruth, Naomi, I'm going to care for you as well, perhaps. Uh, hence the grain. And then it ends where it starts. Ruth and Naomi at home, and then an encounter with Boaz, then Ruth and Naomi at home, and it's sort of like Boaz says, yes, brilliant. Uh, he's going to redeem. He's get, you know, Our fortunes will change. And uh, he's agreed to marry. But we got to wait till the next day where Boaz can settle who you know this whole issue with the Redeemer. And we'll talk about that next week. What are some of the, some of the implications of all of this for us? It's a, fun, it's a really fun story. Uh, Ruth, it's just brilliant, real brilliantly written. Ruth purposely draws out Boaz. She's advocating for herself and by extension advocating for Naomi. Um, but like I said, it's a really charged scene. Uh, there's all sorts of sort of dramatic tension happening. And, and it's worth asking, what are the similar stories that, that's being alluded to here? And we've talked a lot about uh, Lot and his daughters, sort of the beginning of the Moabite family. That's happening. There's a bit of a question of will Ruth be like, uh, like her parents, like her great 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 grandparents? Like, will she be like her ancestors? Boaz similarly has Judah and Tamar in his history, which we haven't talked about as much. So that's another inappropriate sexual relationship that happens. Uh, so yet, despite all of this history of potential transgression, Boaz and Ruth choose to to remain uh to remain pure to demonstrate a sense of restraint and dignity towards each other and it's almost like at a symbolic level their act is is almost like the the corrective the corrective action of what's happened in both of their past right it's almost like it breaks the breaks the chain of this sort of curse almost you could say in some sense or it's it's like here's the here's the tradition of what we usually do it goes really poorly and both of them are choosing not to follow what's expected because of the sins of their parents. And I think that's really important for us to remember. You are not bound by the sins of your past either. Whether the sins of your parents or the sins of your family, whatever that might be, going back to whatever, who knows how long. You are not bound or destined or fated to make those same mistakes. You have a choice on how you will live. And yes, what's happened in your past and, and how you grew up, all of that is, is a factor in who you are. 
but you have free will. You have agency to choose to live how you will. And you can choose to live righteously or you can choose to live sinfully, but you have that choice. Whatever past sins your family's committed or perhaps whatever past sins you've committed personally in your own life. Perhaps your family, maybe you come from a really great family and everyone stand up, but you feel like the black sheep uh, because you've made some pretty terrible errors. Or maybe overall you think I'm a pretty decent person, but honestly, we've all got some skeletons in our closet, right? There, we all have done things that we regret. We're all guilty of sin in one way or another. None of us is perfect. And we need to hear today the message of Ruth that says, regardless of those past sins, there is a call from God to live righteously and obediently today for him. And we can choose to do that. And we can move out of our sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. We can respond to God's invitation of forgiveness and life and hope. And not just try and be better because we can somehow drum up enough energy to make it on our own. No, but we can do it through the power and presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us new people, to transform us by the renewing of our minds, to make us a new creation. And that's what God's salvation does to us when we accept Jesus in our hearts and we turn from sin and we, we choose to follow him. We're called to walk in holiness. And perhaps it's worth thinking just a little bit about how to do that practically. How do we walk in holiness? Say you've committed a sinful act. There's three things that you need to do when that happens. You've committed a sinful act. The first thing you need to do is turn to God. When we commit sin, we want to tend to avoid God. I know I do. I think, God, here I am again. I don't feel like going through this. I should know better. But God invites us to come to him quickly. We need to repent of that sin, and we need to renounce that sin. Repenting of sin is acknowledging that we have done wrong. It's being honest and upfront about it. It's, it's, it's declaring it to God. I have done this. I'm sorry. Renouncing a sin is also important. Renouncing means to turn away from it. It's one thing to say, I did this thing again that I always do, and I want to repent of that, but I don't make any changes in my life to stop me from doing it again. That's repenting without renouncing. You need to repent of your sin, but you also need to renounce it, to turn away from it, to choose not to engage with it, and that might mean changing some things in your life. It might mean not going certain places. It might mean watching your attitude. It might mean watching where you go on the internet. Whatever it might be. To repent and to renounce our sin. To walk away from it. To put it away. And the second thing we do then is to ask God's forgiveness. The Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. And so we ask for forgiveness. And then the third thing we need to do, and this is sometimes the hardest thing for us to do, 
is we need to embrace and receive God's forgiveness. It's one thing to ask for it knowing we should. It's another thing to live as though he truly has forgiven us and to walk in it. To trust that what the Bible says about God's character is true. Uh, And that might be hard to believe. In fact, you may not feel like God forgives you. And that's why we don't base our faith on our emotions. We base it on the truth. You may not feel like you're forgiven. You may still feel guilty. Uh, But your emotions are simply your emotions. Sometimes they're a lie from the enemy. Uh, Not your emotions, but the way in which you might feel guilty or downcast about sin that you've asked for forgiveness for. But we live our lives according not just to our emotions, but according to the truth. And whether you're wrestling with sins in the past uh, or you have something here in your life today that is sort of plaguing you, those are things that are essential for choosing to live holy for God, to repent and to renounce and to choose holiness, to ask for forgiveness, to walk in it. And the second thing that I want to call your attention to from this passage, and this borrows on the first theme, is that both Ruth and Boaz show loyalty and generosity and faithfulness. So they choose to resist potential temptations, and they instead choose to do what's right. And it's not just for themselves, it's also to care for others. And I want to ask this question, just as we head to the Lord's Supper, what are the places or the people or the circumstances where God is inviting you to choose to walk out his holiness. Here's a charged, uh, life-altering sort of situation in Ruth 3. Question of what will happen to a family, to their, their prospects, to their fortune. There's real wealth kind of caught up in this. It's a question of what will happen to a foreign woman and whether she'll be accepted into a new society or not. It's a question of whether a man will step up and be responsible for his duty here as the kinsman redeemer or not. Now, we may not have those exact sort of circumstances happening in our lives, but in the same way, whatever the situation, there are often scenarios where we can either choose to live unrighteously or to live righteously. And that is the same scenario that Ruth and Boaz face in this moment. They can choose to give in to temptation. They can choose to give in to a family history that's wrought with all sorts of brokenness. Or they can choose to live responsibly and to live holy and to walk humbly before God. And all of us, uh, whatever we're going through in our lives, have that same sort of choice. We can choose to give in to sin. We can choose to embrace brokenness. Or we can actually trust that God loves us and forgives us and keeps us and walk out his good character in the relationships that he's given us. So let's pray to that end. And as we come to the table, let it be a a celebration of what Jesus has done for us, that we can indeed walk in the holiness that he calls us to. Let's pray together. Lord, today we thank you so much uh, for the gift of your love. We thank you, Lord, that you call us into obedience and into holiness. We thank you, Lord, that we are not bound by the sins of our past, that there is true forgiveness and hope and life in you. And we just pray today, Lord, that as we would come to this table, that it would be an act of remembering why 
we can walk in forgiveness and why we can walk in salvation because of what you've done for us at the cross. Lord, would you uh, work in our hearts even now as we uh, consider what you've done for us. And Jesus, uh, as we come to this table, your word tells us uh, to consider our own lives uh, before we eat and drink. And so, Jesus, I just pray right now that if there's something in our hearts that we need to confess of, that we need to repent of, Lord, that you would bring that to our attention. And friends, just as we pray, if there's something on your heart that you need to give to Jesus, something that the Holy Spirit is prompting uh, to your mind, I would ask that you give that to him. And if there's uh, a need to repent and to renounce and to ask for forgiveness, this is a good time to do that. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? We don't want to come to this table in an unworthy way. It's only by your blood and by your mercy that we can approach, Lord, that we can approach the throne of grace because you've gone before us. Hmm. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here with us. Jesus, some of us have been holding things for a long time, and we need to let go of that this morning. And so we pray, Lord, as we approach the table, uh, that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would free us, Lord, from the sins of our past and of our present. Lord, that you would break the chains and bring freedom and life.